Well, thank you, Pastor Darren. I'm encouraged and uplifted by your heart of love and care for us as a congregation and as a family. Bless you. And bless all of you. Great to see you, Bridgeway Church. Uh, for those of you new or visiting today, special welcome to you. My name is Don Fraze, and I'm serving here as a transitional pastor. And it's my privilege this morning to start a new series as we begin this fall season. Now, this series has been, been said already, is called uh, Hope and Possibility, a season of thanksgiving. And particularly today in this hope and possibility theme, I want to talk about being thankful for hope. Now, as I thought about this title and this desire for hope, and I have to say to you that there, it's a, just a real personal passion of mine to speak and to bring hope into places. And I guess the reason that I have such a heart and desire to do that is to be very honest with you, I find like there's, there's just so much discouragement out there. And I find that as a pastor and someone that works with a lot of Christian people, that there is lots and lots of discouragement out there about the church. Now, sorry, did we miss uh, dismissing the kids? Is that happening today? I think Joyce said it started today. Where is she? Anyway, if kids haven't left for kids' church, you can go now. Way to go, guys. I just saw all the movement back there, and we, we're not into the flow of that yet, so we'll have to make sure we take care of that and dismiss them next week. Anyway, where was I? Why is it tough to have hope? Because there's so much going on in our society and in our church that often makes people hopeless. And as I thought about this, and as I talked to many, many uh, people of faith, many, many Christians, I would say that a lot of the hopelessness that I encounter seems to come down to two areas. Again, this is just my, my very unofficial poll, but this is my suggestion to do. And those two areas are this. Number one, I find Christians are very hopeless about the church. Either they see the church as lukewarm and just, um, yeah, can't, don't need to say much more. Either they see the church as being lukewarm or they see the church as just being irrelevant and they're very cynical. And I meet people like that all the time that feel very hopeless about the church. So that's one side of the discouragement that I see a lot with followers of Jesus. The other one I would simply call um, secularism. And the fact that our culture around us, both in Canada and even the greater culture around the world, is just becoming more and more secular all the time. And the country that a lot of you thought you knew and the kind of Christian culture that perhaps you grew up with, it seems like it's lost and gone and the secularization of our culture and society is really, really um, discouraging. And so I get the fact that we can be discouraged and yet what I hope that I can call us to as individual followers of Jesus, but also as the body here at Bridgeway Church, is, is there some hope and possibility in where God has us? Now, you might be wondering why there's some pictures of Canada Day up on the screen. I think, oh, there they are already. Well, I'm going to illustrate something, take you back in history again. I know I, know I do this to you, and you're going, not again. Okay, but I'm going to take you back. But I'm going to take you back to the 100th anniversary of Canada. That would have been July 1st, 1967. How many of you? I was alive at that point. How many of you were alive? Okay. Now, as I prepared this earlier this week, I put up these pictures before I had heard the announcement of Queen Elizabeth passing away. And uh, 
I had one picture that I had found of, of a very, very young Queen Elizabeth cutting the cake. You can see that big cake on the right, and that's actually Queen Elizabeth, you can't tell. She's very, very young, and she's cutting the cake. And it just, it almost made me cry, because to think of, of just 95 years of service um, for an incredible person. And uh, anyway, that was just kind of an aside. But I want to take you back in time a little bit to the Canada Day celebration way back in 1967. Now, I'm going to read you a, put on the glasses, read you a quick excerpt from, a, from this book that's called The Church in Exile, and it's by a Canadian author-theologian named Lee Beach. And anyway, as a Canadian author, he describes the scene of Canada Day 1967. Okay, here, here's, what, here's what it was like. It was a beautiful summer day in Ottawa. A crowd of 25,000 people gathered in the nation's capital for one of the country's centennial, for the country's centennial birthday celebration. As Canada turned 100 years old, the festivities began with a prayer service, which was carried on national television and was the centerpiece of the day's events. The crowd waited excitedly as various dignitaries arrived for the service, including all of the main political leaders of the day, the Prime Minister, members of the Cabinet, and members of the Senate. With the guest of honor, Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth, arrived accompanied by her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, and they were greeted by eight members of the clergy who escorted them to their prospective places on the stage. The service consisted of readings from the Bible, including a reading then by then Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson himself, who read from 1 Peter chapter 3. Hymns from the Christian tradition were sung, and prayers including a prayer of confession for the sins of the nation and a reflection of the Lord's prayer were offered. A litany was recited, that's a prayer, and those who gathered were invited to respond with the words, we rededicate ourselves, O Lord. The service was a clear nod to the role that the Christian church had played in the first hundred years of the nation's development. The message was that Canada was a religious country, a country whose religion was decidedly Christian. Does that surprise anyone? Now, do you think that if uh, there was a Canada Day celebration today, that that would be the lineup of events? Not a chance. You are absolutely right. And if you... So, that many years ago, there was no doubt that Christianity was the dominant religion of Canada and, a, and the dominant force in our culture. It was just an is that everyone lived with and that was our normal. I think we all know that we live in a very, very different Canada today. And I wanna to speak to some of that today. As I said, one of the things that some of us can be very discouraged about is seeing the secularization of Canada and wondering, is there any hope for us? Is the, is the nation just continuing to go down and farther and farther away from God? Or is there still hope for the church to be relevant and for the gospel to be relevant in our day? Now the temptation is despair or to think that somehow we got to rise up and fight, which is like a really good Anabaptist Mennonite Brethren way to respond. But anyway, beside the point, how do we rise up as the church with any kind of hope and possibility when we see what we do in the confusion and the pain and the struggles in our nation. Now, one answer that, um, that I've been privy to over the last number of years in, in my world as a pastor and reading 
theologians and all those kind of people, is that there's more and more Christian theologians that are encouraging the church to realign our thinking. And what they mean by that is they're saying, we need to begin to realize that the era of Christendom is over. We're not going back to that era. But that there is a new, but that we need to look at the scriptures and especially the scriptures around, that, that talk about the period of Israel's history called the exile. And that all of that scripture that is about exile is very much scripture that relates to where the church is today. So I'm going to talk today from the scriptures a little bit about how God called his people to respond during exile and how I think that we as the church today can learn how to respond in our secular age, thinking of ourselves and relating to the idea, that idea of being the church in exile. So that's kind of going to be going, that's the broad picture of where we're going to be going today. Now, the, the, I'm going to be sharing from Jeremiah chapter 29. And in Jeremiah chapter 29, there is a verse, it's verse 11, and it is one of those really, really famous verses in church. So if you've been a Christian for a long time, I guarantee you that you have had this verse prayed over you or spoken over you. Maybe it was at your baptism or, or a special time in your life. But it's this beautiful verse here. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Isn't that beautiful? Now, we quote this verse and we often use it as a personal promise. And that's a good thing. But we often don't know what the context is. The context of this verse, this is God speaking to his nation, the nation of Israel, when they were beginning their time in exile. When the nation had been destroyed and the people were now taken from their homes, taken from their country, and moved in exile to have to live in a brand new country. They lost everything and they're living in exile. And it's in that context that God says, I know the plans I have for you. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. So how could God say that to a people who were desperate because they had just lost everything? How did that happen? Well, we need to go back to the context. So, if you have a Bible, you can follow along in Jeremiah 29, and the scriptures will also be on the screen. So let's read a bit around here to get the context of God making this statement during this time of exile. So starting at verse 4, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. And then a few verses later, God makes that promise that I just, that I just read earlier. So I want you to think about God's chosen people, the Jews, the Israelites, now in exile. And I want you to begin to take, make that comparison to we as the church today 
and being kind of in a modern exile and see if some of that comes together for you. Now, as we read this text, the first thing I want you to think about is, in this exile time for Israel, did God abandon his people? No. Did you notice that God himself says, I'm the one? He said, I carried you into exile. Now, was there a reason and a judgment behind the exile? Yes, there was. But God did not abandon them, and God did not cease to be in control. God knew what he was doing, knew how his people needed to to respond, and he was with them. He did not abandon them. He was with them. We need to know that. You see, you need to understand how tragic exile was for these people. Everything they knew to be good was gone. They'd lost their homes. They had lost their land. They lost their king and government, and they lost their temple. So basically, in one foul swoop, they lost everything that would be important to them as a culture. The privilege for them to rule and make their own laws. The privilege for them to have their own religion and the freedom of religion and to set the laws according to their religion. They lost all of that privilege as well as losing all of their personal everything. It was devastating, and now they're somewhere new where they are now the persecuted minority. They are now having to live in a culture where they're not dominant anymore. They're not making any rules. They're not making any laws. They're not having any influence over the religion around them. They are a minority that are persecuted and are living underneath the tyranny of others. That was their reality of exile. And it's in that reality, though, that God doesn't say to them, I've abandoned you. I'm just judging you. God is saying to them, I have a plan for you. Now, before we jump to that, just a little bit on the why of the judgment. Why, was, why were God's people Israel sent into exile? Now, that could be a real long answer, but I'm going to bring it down to a simple answer, and it's going to be this. They lost their mission. They lost the vision that God had called them to. You see, when God raised up a nation... His goal wasn't to be like, I'm just going to pick my favorites and just bless them and hate the rest of the world. That was never God's heart. God wanted to choose a nation to be a testimony to the rest of the world. He wanted to choose one nation to say, I want this nation to be a testimony to the whole world of what it's like to be a nation that follows the one true living God. And Israel was supposed to be a light and a witness to the nations of what a nation under God was like. That was their calling. That's why God called them. Now, the prophets talk about this all over the place. Let me just give you two quick examples from the prophet Isaiah. Um, Isaiah 42 and 46. uh, God speaks through Isaiah saying, I have given you, that's Israel, as a covenant to the people, a light to the nations. And then 49.6, I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. That was God's plan. God had a plan and a mission for this called nation to be a testimony. But you know what they did? They simply were, we like having God to ourselves. We want God to just bless us and not bless others. So we are going to just have our holy little huddle over here, we'll call our nation, And we will try to have all the benefits of God we can. And actually, we just hope that God will curse everyone else. 
And that attitude pervaded over generations and generations and kings and temple and some good revivals and sometimes they would get it a little bit, but most of the time they didn't. And finally God allowed them to be defeated by the neighboring enemies and it was time for exile. And that exile was partly judgment, but it was also time for realignment. Because God's not going to stop his mission and vision to reach the world he loves, but he needed to realign it in order to get them back on track. And again, as you hear me talk about God's plan with Israel, keep thinking ahead to God's plan for us, the church, and maybe why we're in exile, and maybe why we need a realignment in order to fulfill the mission that we're called to. So that's why. Um, just one, one quote from one of these authors that talks about the church in exile. Um, he says it this way. It was the end of privilege. It was the end of certitude. It was the end of domination. It was the end of viable public institutions. It was a painful time for them, like many wonder in our, in our society today. So let's go back to the text now. Jeremiah 29. And starting from verse 4 again, it says, So, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Okay, well, let's just start there. So, the people are in exile. It's devastating. It's hard. They're a persecuted minority. And so what does God say to them? God says to them, You people should just all live in despair and denial, and just wait this thing out. Just live as temporarily as possible in nice little communes, and just wait this thing out, because this is devastating and terrible, and just at some point I'll restore you. Ah, but you're right, God didn't say that to them. There was no denial, or despair, or a call to live temporarily. You know, it's interesting, he's saying to them, you know what, I want you to actually build houses, and plant gardens. And you have to understand that planting gardens in this context isn't like how we think of a garden. We're talking about people planting vineyards and fruit orchards, which take years to develop. You're not getting a crop the next year. So if you're going to be planting vineyards and gardens and crops there, you're planning to stick around for a while and, and building houses. This is what this was about. Um, so God is saying to them, this isn't about denial or despair or to think about this as a temporary situation. I'm calling you, my people, to now engage in the culture around you and put down roots. I want you to live among the people where you are. I want you to earn their trust and then share your lives with them. And out of that, share your faith with them. Share the hope to be the light to the nations like I called you to be. That's what God is trying to say to them here. What about us today? There's another author He's an Australian. His name is Michael Frost, and he also writes a book called Exiles. And he says this, Unfortunately, in post-Christendom, the new realists are over the church's claims, presuming the church to be simply a powerful institution desperate to ensure its own survival. We need to earn the right to be reheard. You see, it used to be in the era of Christendom that we had the right to be heard by the fact that we were the dominant force. It's not true anymore. We have to think differently and realize that this powerful, transforming gospel of Jesus Christ 
needs to be communicated even more desperately than ever. But it's got to be done from a place of humility and a place where we understand that relationship and engagement and respect of people around us is going to, we have to fight the fight to be reheard because there is much more disrespect charged and aimed at, aimed at Christians than there is acceptance and respect. Again, we can lament about that and, and jump up and down and be angry and say how wrong and unfair it is. It doesn't matter. It's still the reality. Hope comes when we learn how to respond. So, what else? God continues. So, um, verse, that was verse 5. He said, build houses, settle down. Then verse 6, marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there and do not increase. So here God is saying, even beyond material or economic engagement in the culture around you, he's now saying, I am also calling you now to relational engagement with the culture around you. Hmm. So as I thought about that, I wondered. Ask myself this question, I encourage you to ask yourself this question. Do we just live and work in our world and culture? Or do we actually have relationships there? If we're going to impact this culture, it's not going to be a return to Christendom where we get to make the laws and force people to go to church. It's going to happen because followers of Jesus filled with the Spirit begin to live it out authentically within the culture that we live in. I'm not talking about compromise. I'm talking about living passionately for Jesus and loving people, but not living in little Christian-y bubbles, but actually living relevantly within our culture. That's, that's what God is telling his nation to do in exile. Again, when they're the persecuted minority being looked down upon, struggling, and yet he's not saying get angry and just tough it out and live in denial. And I don't think that Jesus is saying that to us as the church today either. This uh, author I read at the beginning, the, one Can the Canadian author that, that writes about exile, he says, the exilic period demonstrates the disorientation that new social realities bring. There's a lot of that. Sacred text are scriptures, and human experience can produce wisdom to respond effectively to these new realities. You know, Israel needed to use their ancient text of Torah as well as the life experiences from everything changing. So they lost all their institution of temple worship. They had to figure out the whole synagogue system in order to keep their faith, but do it in a creative way to engage the culture they were in. Are we just longing for a return to the good old days? Or are we wanting to strategically engage through scripture and through the wisdom of leadership in order to engage our culture in hope and possibility that the gospel of Jesus Christ is still powerful and relevant and transforms people's lives? But it might be hard work. It's going to be a lot more than just having Sunday morning church services. But that's, that's, what's, that's what the call is. So, the, the last verse we'll look at, um, verse 11. Um, so, no, sorry, verse 7. 
So after, after uh, building and planting and then relationally engaging by marry off your kids and start having families and mixing into the culture around you, then verse 7 says, also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. You see, God is saying to them, engage in the city and the culture around you. Pray for it. Get involved in it. You want it to prosper because if your city and your culture around you prospers, so do you. You are to be people who bring blessing. Not just be the grumpy people surviving within your culture, angry about it, but to be engaged in it, to be the people who are the hopeful people, the thankful people, the contributing people. That's what he's saying to them. How do we do this? How do we respond when we get so discouraged over the secularization and the confusion of our culture and where do we fit anymore? Can we rise above that despair and that anger to re-engage the calling, to re-engage the mission? What, what, could, what could that look like? Another author is talking about considering different ways of looking at how we view our world and our engagement. And, and so this quote says, uh, consider a purified Christian alternative where one could aim to dwell in the suffering and evil without recoil, sure of the power of God to transform it. You see, I was raised that when I'm around evil or non-Christian people and I'm supposed to recoil because to stand for a Christian means that I go, oh, that's terrible. That's what a good Christian does. Is it? What was Jesus accused of all the time? The religious leaders hated Jesus because he hung out with the people who were considered the losers and the sinners and the prostitutes and tax collectors. He hung out with the people that everybody else wanted to reject. They wanted Jesus to go, oh, I'm religious. I don't hang around with people who do evil things. No, Jesus was right in there with them, being accused of being a drunkard with them because they loved being with him and they trusted him. And do you think Jesus was light on sin and just wanted to compromise? I doubt it. But they loved him and they wanted to be with him because he was bringing a message of hope. Not a message of judgment like the religious people of the day, but a message of hope that he had come to bring hope and transformation and forgiveness and change to a world that desperately needed that message. Is it possible that the church is in exile today because we've lost our focus on mission and vision and we need a big thinking reset in order to truly be the church of Jesus Christ? You know, the early church had 300 years of history before they were legal and allowed to be Christian. For the first 300 years, the early church was like the church in exile. They were the persecuted minority. They had no privilege. They had no way to ever affect the laws of the land or the morality of the land in any way by legislation or politicalness in any way. They were just persecuted and they were of low position. Their only hope was to trust completely in God and to radically live out their faith and one by one live it out with that kind of love and radicalness that it impacted people around them. It wasn't Christendom. It was a radical movement of Jesus' followers. Are we perhaps becoming that church again? Is that the reset that's coming?
Yeah, presence. That's what the end of that quote is about. So, to close this, with all of that, this was supposed to be about hope and possibility, and I feel I was pretty heavy today, so I apologize. This is quite a passionate message for me, as you can probably tell. And again, it's not because I want to be critical of anyone. It's because I really believe in the church and really believe that we need to rise from the ashes of all of this discouragement and cynicism and realize that God has not abandoned us. And that would be my first response for you today in terms of how can we now grasp onto some hope in our time. Where is the hope? The hope is that King Jesus is still on the throne and that God has not abandoned us. Just like he took Israel by his initiative into exile in order for them to be reset in their mission, are we willing to trust him to be taken into exile and to be reset to the mission and the vision of the gospel? There's hope in that. God has not abandoned us. God is in control and is in this. Even when we see so much carnage around us in the church and in our culture, I don't think Jesus has stepped off the throne for a moment. He's still in control. We can, we can hang on to that. Great hope in that. But what about the possibility? The possibility of this gospel that we dearly love, knowing Jesus and that transforming people's lives. You know, so often we think that the way we're going to do this is that we're going to out-truth people. We've got more truth than others, so if we can just all get equipped with enough truth, we can out-truth people. Well, my suggestion would be that likely that's just going to create a lot of uh, dead-end arguments. It's probably not going to bring a lot of people to Jesus. Otherwise, other times Christians think, well, we're going we're gonna to out-good everyone. Because, of course, as followers of Jesus, um, that makes us better people. So we're going to be so good and do so many good works and so many be such great people that people are just going to flock to Jesus. Now, that's not happening either somehow. You know, I think we're gravely mistaken if we think we're going to out-good people. I know a lot of really, really good people who are full of goodness, do amazing good works and, and acts of of hospitality and generosity that hold no Christian faith at all. So I don't think it's about outgooding people. So if we're not going to out-truth them, we're not going to outgood them, what's the possibility of the gospel still transforming people's lives? Well, I haven't got a great pat answer for you at all, but I have something for you to think about. And it's, it's this quote that's probably confusing the, you that you're seeing, seeing up here. This has inspired me. This author says, there is a specter haunting our secular age the specter of meaninglessness. Now, we don't use that word specter very much, so I figured I better, I better define it, but it means, as you see, there's something widely feared as a possible unpleasant or dangerous occurrence. So, there's a specter haunting our secular age. The specter or the fear, the loathing of meaninglessness. Does the gospel of Jesus Christ does knowing God through Jesus give us such a deep sense of meaning that that could actually be the hope and possibility that we can bring into our culture? Let me give you a quick illustration. A couple years ago, I was asked by a couple 
who both identified as atheists if I would uh, do their wedding ceremony. Now you might ask, that's strange. Why would two atheists want a Christian pastor to do their wedding ceremony? You must have told them not a chance. Well, sorry to disappoint you, but I said absolutely. I would consider it a great um, opportunity and honor to do your wedding. Now, the connection, just to fill you in a little bit, so the, the, the guy in the relationship was brought up with absolutely no religious background at all, and the girl was brought up in the church, but later had decided to walk away and, and identified now as an atheist. So because of her having some of that nostalgic Christian background, she still wanted a, that kind of a wedding, right? So when I met with them, I was very honest to say, hey, you know, I'm not going to put you guys in an awkward position of having you say things or do things that you don't really mean. However, as a Christian pastor, um, if you want me to do your wedding, you've got to allow me to, to bless you and pray for you and, and do that part, and, and they were cool with that. So, we, I, so I went ahead and did this wedding, and it was, it was very, very interesting wedding to do. Now here's the part that hit me, though, and it kind of connects back to this quote. So after the wedding, the, the now new husband came up to me, and this guy is not usually someone who's very verbal, but I, I couldn't believe it. He was just blown away by the wedding. And he was like, he said, I was so skeptical, I wasn't even sure I believed in marriage, but that wedding ceremony was so meaningful to me, and he just went on and on. Now, I'm not saying all that to, be, to say that I was amazing in doing the wedding. It's got nothing to do with that. Here's what I caught on to. If you grow up with no religious background or no church or religion, you kind of grow up in a culture that's completely void of ceremony. See, think about it. If you've grown up in the church or in a, in a religious culture, from all through your life, there's things like baby dedications and baptisms and, and membership times and even like a little Bible handout. Or There's so many things that, that are built into our culture that create meaning, even, even just some of those kind of ceremonies. What I learned from this, from this young man was that ceremony had never really been a part of his life. And, and the impact of a marriage ceremony just impacted him in a way that, that was just astounding. You know, I was almost embarrassing how much he went on about it. But what encouraged me was, wow, that's a small thing to offer meaningfulness to someone who's maybe never really felt full meaningfulness in life and for that to be able to point to the gospel and to point to Jesus. And I don't know how that could apply in other ways, but in other places. But I want to encourage us today. Can we rise up and walk away from anger? Can we walk away from that disgusted Christian frown that looks at our world and goes, oh, everything's so bad and everything's... Can we leave that attitude? And can we actually believe that the power of the gospel can transform even, even as far gone as our culture seems sometimes? Does the gospel still have the power to transform? In 300 years, the gospel transformed the Roman Empire, which is one of the most godless things you could imagine. It's not about God not being able to do it. 
It's about us as followers submitting to him and trusting him. Can I encourage us today? Let's move on from the negative and let's hang on to the hope that our gospel is, that our God is, that our Jesus is. That's the hope and possibility and that's why I want to call us to a season of thanksgiving. Because you know, I believe in Bridgeway Church and I believe that Jesus Christ believes in Bridgeway Church. And yeah, we've had some problems and challenges but this room And this congregation is full of incredible, gifted people who love Jesus, love their community, and want to see us make a difference. There's hope and possibility in this room. That's what we need to focus on. Move beyond the fear. Move beyond the criticism and the cynicism. And let's look up to the one that can give us hope. Worship team, come. Pray with me. Oh, Lord God, thank you for this incredible congregation of people. And Lord Jesus, uh, forgive me for probably too many words today. I pray that the dross of dawn will just be wiped away from people's memories. But I pray, Holy Spirit, that where you have spoken through your word today, that that will penetrate hearts. And Lord Jesus, I pray in your name and by your power that fear and cynicism and pessimism and anger. Lord, I pray that you would just defeat that and cleanse that in our lives. And I pray, Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, I know I've got no ability to convince these people to put their hope and trust in you. Oh, Holy Spirit, move in power and bring hope and possibility to every life and to this church. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand with us as we close our service.